Welcome to the New Models Podcast. On this episode, we talk with Catherine Neal Harris, who is the Fellow in Drug Policy at Rice University's Baker Institute for Public Policy. We both grew up in Norfolk, Virginia, and a rare instance of Facebook actually being good led me to realize that Katie, as I knew her, is a seriously smart voice in drug policy reform in the United States, paying attention not only to the intimate aspects of harm reduction for end users, but also mapping how prohibition, policing, prison, technology, and racism all intersect, playing an essential role in answering the questions raised by current unrest. This episode was made possible by Kunstverein Braunschweig, which is currently hosting an exhibition developed in close cooperation with Bonaventure So Bejang Indikung, the founder and artistic director of Berlin's Savvy Contemporary. The show at Kunstverein Braunschweig is called The Faculty of Sensing and involves 16 artists responding to the work of early 18th century Enlightenment thinker Anton Willem Amo, who is considered the first established black academic in Germany. An extension of his work on the body and soul, he pointed to the flagrant contradictions between the proclaimed ideas of the Enlightenment and the traumas wrought by Western colonialism. Notably, Anton Willem Amo lived at the same time as Immanuel Kant and David Hume, initially sharing comparable renown. Reflecting on this, the exhibition at Kunstverein Braunschweig calls into question the historical process of erasure and omission and how Kant and Hume could be in light of their black contemporary so confident in their explicit racism. The Faculty of Sensing opened March 27th and remains on view through September 13th. The Kunstverein Braunschweig is open every day except for Monday and is located in a really cool 19th century building with a palatial lawn. I want to add that if you've never been to Braunschweig, the city itself is an interesting backdrop for this exhibition. Dating back to at least the 10th century, Braunschweig served as an important center for trade up until the Renaissance, and some of the original late Gothic architecture still stands. In any case, check out the show, The Faculty of Sensing, at Kunstverein Braunschweig. You can find more at kunstvereinbraunschweig.de or by clicking on their logo on our homepage, newmodels.io. I'm Lil Internet, joined by my co-hosts Carly Busta and Daniel Keller. Let's get into it. Welcome to the New Models Podcast. Uh, we finally today are bringing you the drugs episode. I think <laughs> it's been a long time in the making. A lifetime for me, pers- <laughs> personally. <laughs> um, but we have our guest today is Katie Neal Harris, who is also from Norfolk, Virginia, my hometown. And uh, how did Texas end up like a center of drug policy reform. So the Baker Institute is named after James A. Baker III, who was the Secretary of State, both the Bush one and, and Reagan cabinets. And he's got an old school conservative Republican. And they established this institute back in the early 90s. It's interesting because I, when I talk to a lot of conservative people like here in Texas, they're like, 
really James Baker, he supports drug reform, but I mean, he does, you know, and there are a lot of conservatives that do. And so, but yeah, I mean, it's certainly not the place that you would think is the center of drug reform. And we're not, I mean, they're, you know, the state is still very conservative. And so there's a lot to be done here. (laughs) Is is it kind of like the libertarian side of, of conservatives? Like what is that small C or big? I never remember. Is it? Yeah. So a lot of the kinds of conservatives that support drug or criminal justice reform tend to be like the libertarian streak of conservative. And they're all about like saving money and decreasing the power of the state. We also have a lot of social conservatives and our wonderful governor who, as I said, opened the state too early and is now having to shut it back down. He is on the social conservative side, as are many of the Republicans that we have in our legislature. And so that is certainly a barrier to reform for us. Something interesting that when, and and correct me if I'm wrong, but one interesting thing about the position you hold is you sort of have a two-pronged role where one is harm reduction, education, helping people with addiction to, to be safer. And then on the other side, it's sort of, how do we also reform the government to think about drugs in a more progressive way? Yeah, no, I mean, yeah, I think that's, I think that's exactly right. Like on the one hand, we try to tune into what's going on at a community level. On the other hand, we try to use the platform that we have as this think tank that's associated with somebody who's conservative. And we try to use that platform to get the ear of elected officials. Right. Um, I mean, maybe this goes back too far and can't be explained briefly. But I mean, essentially, the origins of drug prohibition, particularly in the United States, they're racialized, right? Like generally drug prohibition came from fears of uh, black men raping white women on cocaine or the Chinese opium dens. But yeah, can we actually maybe even frame it differently? It's not so much in terms of race, but just in terms of like other cultures. I mean, what, what are the origins of drug prohibition, drug as transgression? Because obviously every culture uses some kind of psychoactive drug, but some are deemed transgressive and deviant and others are socially acceptable. So what is that background? Yeah, so generally modern day drug policy that we have in the United States is traced back to, say, late 1800s, early 1900s. A lot of people used opium. It was used as a medication. It was used, you know, before the Food and Drugs Act was passed in 1906, you could get all these tinctures that claim to cure everything from you know, insomnia to headaches or whatever. I mean, you know, cure-alls. Most of those things had some sort of opium and alcohol in them. So you actually had much higher rates of opium addiction then at that time than you do now. But it was one of those things, it was a constructive problem. So opium use wasn't considered a problem until people said it was a problem. And part of that, you know, came from a real concern from doctors about seeing a lot of people who were addicted. But then the other one was about the othering of people. And some of the early anti-opium legislation For example, um, Western states started outlawing opium smoking before it was regulated at the national level. And that was in response to the fact that there was a large influx of Chinese immigrants on the West Coast. So people that, you know, were very anti-immigrant, hostile to Chinese immigrants, supported these bans on opium smoking for that reason. So you had that sort of racial animus that's dovetailed with moral uh, superiority. If you think about stuff like the temperance movement, that was very much grounded in this idea that, you know, drinking was an amoral behavior. So you had had racism and then you had this religiosity combined. And then all of that also combined with America's colonialism because we were colonizing places like the Philippines where opium smoking was also rampant. And so... 
there's also this kind of idea that, you know, is our role to civilize other races. And at the same time that we started regulating these things here in the U.S., we've also started pushing for international controls of, of opium and for additionally then cocaine and, and marijuana. But all of that was tied into this larger construct of regulating people's behavior and that being grounded in this racialized context. I just have a question about it's just a history question. The Opium Wars were before all of that. Was there a different uh, mentality in the UK that it was, well, it's just business versus this idea of civilizing countries? Where did that shift happen? Was it somewhere in between that period? or? Yeah, so it kind of happened uh, simultaneously because at the same time, you also had people within the UK that were sort of on board with the same kind of US temperance movement. That opposition, again, it was more grounded in this sort of moralizing right. rhetoric and, and religiosity versus a larger concern for, for people's health. Right. right. I, so that's like the longer burn history of it. And it's something that I would like to return to. Um, but maybe as like another history point, do we want to set up like Probably the war, like on drugs? war on drugs? Right. Nixon, 70s. And right. Also felonies as removing the right to vote, right to uh, bear arms. Those things all kind of intersect, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, you can go back. The war on drugs, you know, was officially declared in 1973, but it started in the 1960s um, when Nixon ran his first presidential campaign. And there was this big effort to tie the civil rights movement to violence, right? So in some large cities were experiencing an increase in violence that was separate from the civil rights movement, which was a nonviolent resistance movement. But what Nixon and other conservative Republicans did at the time was they tried to link that all of that civil unrest, the whole civil rights movement, with this idea of crime. Uh, and so that was a way sort of for them to appeal again to the racial animus of white voters. And, you know, in the United States, that's when you sort of had this switch in, in party affiliation, right? Because up until then, you know, the South was actually largely Democratic. And then the change with the civil rights movement was that the people in the South essentially just shifted parties to align themselves with Republicans, who, again, had sort of invested in this tough on crime movement. And then the war on drugs was a natural piece of that. And right, along with, you know, the, the greater criminalization of drug use, you also had felon disenfranchisement and sentencing enhancements and three strikes laws and overall increasing in penalties and punitiveness. Yeah, what what was the difference in sentences like before and after? Do you actually anecdotally know like Yeah, so it, it varies. Um in the early nineteen seventies, you know, an average length of stay in prison for like a drug offense could have been like a year to eighteen months. After the 1980s and like with the sentencing disparities between crack cocaine and, and powder cocaine, the average sentence for like a low level drug possession was something like five years. Damn. What was the moral justification for that? Or how could a judge justify that five, like one can imagine a year if one decides, oh, well, the dealer like needs to get out of circulation. You can imagine some logical like purely logistically dismantling a piece of a network or something. Right, exactly. But like five years, like how was that, what was the justification for that kind of a sentence? Well, so that's, yeah, so that, I mean, a lot of that goes directly to the federal government really sort of focused on on crack cocaine as being this especially addictive drug. And I mean, it was really just this false narrative that was pushed and they used all these words about like, you know, the urban menace of drug use is coming to the suburbs. Especially if you look at the media coverage during the 1980s, I mean, it was incredibly irresponsible and ill-informed. And most of the violence that was associated with crack cocaine was around the illicit drug trade, right? It wasn't around right. the drug use itself. 
it was around controlling the territory and the selling of these things, which was so profitable because of prohibition. So, I mean, the justification was really grounded in trying to tackle this like street level violence. The federal level, you had support for these sentencing enhancements because at this point, you know, we'd already had over a decade of political support for being tough on crime. So it was already in the making. There was a lot of public support for these kinds of things. There were public opinion polls in the 1980s where like the majority of people said that drug use was the number one problem plaguing America. Yeah. I mean, I feel like it was a whole cottage industry and it up until recently of just moral panics over a new drug every few years. I think in the UK, I feel like, I remember like skunk where there was like weed is now skunk and it's <laughs> making people go psychotic. Oh, yeah. I feel, or Jenkum, remember there was even like <laughs> fake news ones, but I feel like that's kind of cooled off. There was the vape, I mean, the vaping well, disease. Well, and stuff. Okay. That was a few right. years ago bath now. And then, then crocodile or whatever, crocodile. Right. Or. Anyways. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but I feel like that maybe is, is over. Well, I think we're, I think we're always going to go through these cycles, right? Drug use goes in cycles. Like if you look right now, right, we're in this, what people are calling an opioid epidemic, but heroin use is pretty common, like in the fifties and then weighing down in the sixties and seventies, these cyclical patterns in terms of what drugs are popular among people anyway. And it's the same kind of thing with, with the moral panic as well. And I think we'll, continue to see that play out, although maybe in a less punitive way now than it has been in the past, just because I don't think people have the stomach to continue with the rates of mass incarceration that we saw in the 1980s. Right, right. I mean, it does, when people talk about addiction, you call to mind a very solitary situation where one handles their addiction with shame and isolation. But we know that addiction is actually always very social, both the like gaining the addiction and also being cured. And so one of the things that seems so incongruous is that drugs are handled on this individual basis. You are arrested for your drug use. How do you see the individual versus the community? How has that discussion changed, say, since the 50s and 60s prior to the war on drugs? You know, I think until the last 10 years, maybe the way that, you know, we've been considering addiction is a deviant behavior. Um, You know, there are certainly always people that have said that it's it's a medical condition, but certainly in just in the general public with people that don't think about these things, like, I mean, I think they still see it as a choice, right? It's not the same as mental illness. People choose to use a drug. And so the individual sort of gets the blame when they're using drugs. And now, you know, even, you know, we've seen sort of this, quote unquote, more compassionate turn with the opioid epidemic. And a lot of that is driven by the fact that so many of the people that were dying, at least initially, were white. Um, Those trends are kind of changing now. You've seen an increased demographics in terms of overdoses. But with that, you know, then there was all of a sudden this more compassionate treatment towards people who were using. And then we started focusing on medication-assisted treatments. Even then, I mean, I think it's still very much focused on the individual behavior of a person and not addressing, like, systems or communities or things that, you know, lead people to use drugs in the first place. Precisely. It's like, you know, we Julian, you were saying in this monologue, like, you know, the the world is so stressful. It it makes sense that benzos and opiates are so prevalent. It also makes sense that there's like Adderall and methamphetamine use in a time when you're under pressure to have five jobs at once. So it just seems so incongruous that all the focus is on one individual who is bad because they have addictions. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I also feel like there's the individual thing and the only way it's looked at systematically is like the supply and it's like, right. okay, the individual's failing for taking it, but also if we just get rid of the supply, then they won't be able to take it. That's both of them are avoiding dealing with the actual social implications yeah. of why they're doing the drug use. But I do think it's the two prong thing and they're both really brutal. There, there's this like inability to understand this as a complex issue. So there's all this focus on like, oh, drug use leads to addiction. The vast majority of people use drugs and use them without a problem. 
even though there is this greater compassion now, every story I see about someone who's using opioids or meth, it's always about like, you know, oh, they were fine. And then they started using this, these drugs and now like they're homeless or they're doing sex work or whatever. I mean, it's just, it's just this always devolving narrative. And I think that, you know, there are so many people that use things and function and we have to be able to recognize that duality, right? That there are people that use drugs and they can do that and that's their choice and they can function. And then there are people that need help with their drug use and we need to be able to provide that assistance as well. Mm, um, right. And I just, you know, we continue to not realize that in terms of our policies. Yeah, we need more depictions of high functioning, casual meth users <laughs> <That laughs> contributing to more society. more common than you think. Absolutely. I mean, I feel uh, like in general. All of the functioning addicts, they're, every, yeah. they're everywhere, but you, you can't tell, I feel like. But also, yeah. I mean, it's grades of things. I mean, like Adderall is legal, but methamphetamine isn't. And I mean, yeah. I, I don't know so much about the chemistry of it. Obviously, methamphetamine is like more potent. But yeah, we are prescribed these things. And then somebody decides at a certain concentration, it's no longer legal. And why? Like, why Why is Adderall legal well, but methamphetamine isn't? I mean... And, and they're, like, even upping the, the strength of, like, the stimulants they are prescribing, like Vyvanse, right? It's like right. A, and this is... Well, this leads to where I actually wanted to pivot to anyways a bit is in terms of, like, the pharmaceutical industry, the, like, big legal commercial entities. I mean, it seems like since the late 90s-ish, they've just gone totally fucking rogue and are basically... You know, some of them are just operating as straight up legal drug pushers, like Vyvanse. It's like a pro drug just for like the fun, euphoric, racemic side of amphetamine while leaving the like annoying, hypertensive one. And we should get into this more, but was the last time that existed, was it before the Harrison Act or whatever? Like, was it the early 20th century when what we would consider psychoactive or drugs of dependency intersected with big business? Or is that also a sort of cycle of pharmaceutical companies basically acting irresponsibly, pushing substances that they know are, are habit-forming and uh, very attractive for recreational use? Yeah, you know, that's a good question. Uh, I know that like in the 90s, when those drugs started getting marketed heavily, there's at the same time this push on the medical side about recognizing pain as this fifth vital sign, right? So there's these different things merging together to create this perfect storm where these drugs are easily marketable. I don't think there was ever a time when pharmaceutical companies were like good actors, you know, Um <laughs> I mean, I think that they, you know, have always tried to make a profit and if not selling things that they know can cause addiction, selling other things that they know might have serious side effects, right? Like there's the drug um, thalamide. Oh, I have right. it written down. So thalidomide. But it was cre originally created by a company called Grunenthal. Anyway, the thalidomide was marketed to women for like dealing with stress in like the 1950s and 60s. And it, you know, resulted in all these birth defects, like missing a limb and that kind of thing. Um, so, I mean, there's certainly irresponsible marketing there. I want to ask you, do you, do you believe that the CIA invented crack? Because <laughs> I've heard, multi I've heard okay. multiple kind of credible accounts. I mean, definitely the CIA was involved in the trade, but did they literally invent crack and, and put it into the community, black communities? Uh, <laughs> I don't know that they invented it, but um, it's pretty they, yeah, they were certainly me. involved. But there's uh, the question of pleasure, right? I, like, I wonder if that, what are you going to say? Well, I was just going to say, I mean, it's interesting, though. The, the medical industry was trying to kind of destigmatize pain relief, right? And, and allow doctors the space to make the decision to treat pain adequately 
for their patients and prescribe more. But you're saying basically the pharmaceutical company's decision to really push OxyContin and, and introduce all these like highly euphoric, highly desirable opiates on, on the market. It's almost like just pure capitalism logic. Or, or was like even the destigmatization part of a wider plan or conspiracy? Yeah, I mean, there's aspects of the pharmaceutical industry that were definitely involved in that destigmatization. What the pharmaceutical industry has been trying to do for decades and they can't figure out how to do, right, is to make an op- like an opioid-like painkiller that is non-addictive or habit-forming or dependency-forming. So that was what OxyContin was, uh, extended release OxyContin. And more recently, there's been a, like Tramadol, which is like a weaker right. opioid that's not as regulated as the others. At, at first, people were like, oh, this one's not as addictive because it's not as but strong. But it also has SSRI but, effects or something in the serotonin system, right? I think. So the main thing I know about it is that it processed by the body a little bit differently. When they originally did tests on it for its like addictive nature, they did it by like effects on the body through injecting because that's how, you know, a lot of the preferred route of administration for people that take opioids, but it's actually stronger in oral form. But the point though is that, right, like, yes, I mean, it's very much been like a capitalist enterprise to market these painkillers and to be able to profit off of them. There is some now. legitimate reason for thinking that pain is like, I don't know about it being a right, but that it actually can cause harm feeling pain, right? right? Mm. There's, I mean, it wasn't only capitalistic, this kind of revolution on pain in medicine, right? I mean, that's my understanding, but... Yeah, no, yeah, no, I mean, you're right. And especially with chronic pain, I mean, chronic pain is debilitating. And I mean, people that are experiencing that, it affects their health and their mental health. All these things are related. And then if you look at the national surveys that ask people why they take um, prescription opioids non-medically, meaning not prescribed, the number one reason is to deal with pain. Mm. So there's certainly also that problem of of untreated pain, 100%. But the question of pleasure, I'm still interested in this question of pleasure. Go for it. So, I mean, I don't know what your thoughts are on it or how, what the discourse is around it, but we always speak about pharmaceuticals in terms of managing pain or managing some condition, but then it becomes illegal when it gets into the zone of pleasure. I guess marijuana is different because that's like, you know, has been legalized. But what are the politics of pain and pleasure when it comes to drug use? Yeah, no, I'm glad you I'm glad you brought that up. And in the U.S., you're not allowed to have any pleasure yeah. <laughs> from substance. You know, even with marijuana, yes, marijuana is increasingly illegal. But here in Texas, the medical right. law we have is the CBD only. The only kind of cannabis that's legal for medical purposes is this like high CBD, low THC mm. concentrate. So like the THC has to be less than 0.5%. Where you see those low THC bills is predominantly in the South. And it's for exactly that purpose of like, well, you know, we, okay, so there's some medicine in this, but we don't want anybody to feel good, right? We don't, we don't need people, people don't have to feel good taking this. Um, <laughs> even though completely ignoring the fact that the THC does have medical properties as well and that the THC and CBD work together right. and it's a sort of right. entourage effect. Also, just a quick note that euphoria is considered like a negative side effect on any like medication. Because it might lead to addiction. Is that the thinking or something? I guess so, but still, it's funny. I mean, side note, of course, I mean, if we really blow this (laughs) conversation. Side, side, side note. Side, side, side note. If we were to really blow this conversation open and we got into speaking about the FDA and speaking about like, you know, what what kind of food is marketed, there's no problem with selling you like fucking Oreos with tons of shit in it and marketed like you'll be so happy when you eat these like double stuffed Oreos and it's going to be great. Meanwhile, there's actual negative health benefits to that, right? And so it's okay if your body like feels like shit in that situation and you have this this idea of happiness. But as soon as there's a drug 
that might create some kind of chemical euphoria that's not just sugar or fat, then <laughs> right. it's illegal. And it just seems so arbitrary to me. It's, I don't well, we're know. Allowed to, we're allowed to enjoy alcohol, right? Also, I mean, right. alcohol is constantly marketed for that. And it's never, and there's just this huge, again, this dichotomy in terms of like alcohol is okay and drugs somehow aren't. And it's really frustrating. And you see it with treatment with opioids. Here, like we're finally having more acceptance of things like methadone and suboxone, but those drugs don't work for everyone. And I know like in Switzerland, it's the heroin treatment for some people. And that is still such a non-starter here, like on a national level, because the idea of giving someone a drug that they like as treatment is just, I mean, because again, you're not, you're not supposed to be able to have pleasure, right? Methadone is, is less pleasurable than heroin for people. So what are they protecting? I mean, it's kind of like the question of like, is it about lives, but like applied to drugs? Like, are they protecting the property of pharmaceutical companies? Like, you know, intellectual property? Is that what I this mean, is about? I mean, that's a big part like, of lobbying around opioid replacement therapy. Like, there was a really scary moment, I remember. I, it was sometime during the Trump years, but some pharmaceutical company was aggressively lobbying to have um, now Trexone as being like, the front line or the like covered by public health uh, insurance, whatever treatment for opioid uh, replacement therapy. Well, first of all, it's not an opioid replacement therapy. Second of all, in terms of medicalized approaches, it is like the most dangerous, the fucking worst one you could ever have. My roommate, Ben, was on naltrexone and that's actually, he died because he waited till the month was up of his shot the little window he could still get high, went on a bender and OD'd and died. So Jesus, yeah. I'm sure you know more about that situation though. Well, exactly what you said is something that happens. Yeah, so the, the pharmaceutical company is Alchemies and they aggressively lobbied to have Vivitrol, which is the injectable form of the naltrexone, made available like in criminal justice settings. Again, there's a huge market for it there, right? Because in law enforcement, you have people that are like, well, yeah, we don't want people to overdose, but this is a non-opioid, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's all this emphasis on it. But there's exactly that risk that if people, at the end of that 30 days of taking it, their tolerance is so much lower. And so if they go out and use, they're at such a higher risk of overdose. And, you know, it's one of those things that it it can be an option for people, but it, it shouldn't be forced on anyone. Um, and there's this concern here that like in drug courts, for example, that there are judges now that want people to be on, on Vivitrol versus methadone or, or Suboxone and, because it's a non-opioid. And it literally blocks also not only your exogenous opiates that you would take or, or use from the street or medically, whatever. It blocks your endogenous opioids, too. Right. So you wouldn't even like you wouldn't get a runner's high. If you are on Vivitrol, hmm. from so it's like my kind of punishment. It's like a chemical punishment. It, it is like like a chemical castration, but for pleasure yeah. in a way. Jeez. Yeah. Well, and so one of the things though that you have also because alcohol binds to the opioid receptors, right? So Vivitrol can be a way to help people um, ah, reduce right. pain because it blocks the euphoria from that as well. Which the the fact that we don't actually provide medications for alcohol use and we still focus on abstinence is kind of a whole nother problem. But, but so what you have though are people that are on naltrexone then that will turn to drugs like meth, right? If they want to get high because, you know, using meth, they can still do that and feel something, you know, even though their opioid receptors are blocked, you know, where there's a will, there's a way. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, very, this is like a current event topic, but uh, we had some execs from Insys, pharmaceutical company 
they made uh, some sort of uh, fentanyl derivative or, I I don't know, some new delivery that was patented. They made a fucking rap video called, uh, (laughs) like, uh, I love titration is not a problem. But basically talking about titrating the doses up for people using this drug. Shout out to... Greg Sordillo, my uh, good friend from Boston, who sent me that rap video like with 600 views. I don't know how he found it. But anyways, Insys, so they heavily marked, they were bribing doctors to prescribe this fentanyl-related drug. And they were the first execs uh, actually sent to prison, I think, over unresponsible marketing of opioids uh, in America. And I guess my question is like, why Insys and did other pharma execs actually also deserve imprisonment? Yeah, so Insys, because they did things like make a rap video. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I mean, but really, they, they were incredibly egregious actors. I mean, the fraud was, was just so rampant. There were three doctors that wrote prescriptions for them. As the drug was called Subsys, and it was a fentanyl oral spray. And their sales force very heavily tried to get doctors to sell it and then also to sell higher and higher doses. And there were three doctors that cost Medicare $15 million over three years in fraudulent prescriptions. Jesus. Um, so it was very hard to ignore. And that's the other part of it was the fraud, right? So they lied because the oral spray can cost somewhere between like $10,000 and $19,000 a month. What? Um, yeah. Right. And the only it's only approved use is for cancer pain, right? For cancer related pain for people that are have a high opioid tolerance. And so they lied, um, not you know, to Medicare and Medicaid and other insurers about what they were prescribing it for. I mean, they tried to say all these patients had cancer, or they just lied about it. There is a lot of evidence of the fraud and of illegal kickbacks to doctors for for prescribing these things. The other thing is that Subsys was like the only thing that Insys made, right? So when they they took the company public in 2012, they were worth like 330 million by 2015, and it was it was almost all from that drug. So that was just like the most egregious example that you had, right? But yeah, I mean, certainly other pharma execs deserve the same kind of treatment, and they just it's been a little harder to prove the case. It was Purdue, the Sackler family. Way back in 2007, they paid a large settlement back then. It was like over $600 million. There were three executives at that time that also admitted to lying about OxyContin being addictive. But at the time, they had friends in the Justice Department, and they only had to plead guilty to misdemeanors. And so that's why they didn't get any jail time. I mean, pharm- pharmaceutical companies and profiting off of opioids, like it actually made me think of multinational corporations in a way I hadn't before. I mean, it almost becomes a really good example of their sort of extra state status mm. because, uh, for instance, 80 milligram OxyContin of the formulation that was most coveted and abusable in the United States is now being pushed in Europe and developing hmm. countries. It's shown up in the mark black market in Berlin for 20 euros a pill. It was $80 a pill in the United States. So it's relatively really cheap. It seems to me that these companies are just basically taking the same tactic they use in the United States, knowing the, like how destructive it is and just doing it in other countries. And I find it interesting because it's the type of act that would be moralized and highly criminalized in the United States under existing thought about drugs and drug laws. And yet they can operate internationally doing this exact same thing and essentially always evade accountability, especially personally in terms of the human beings 
making these decisions. Mm. And I think that's actually like very scary, but also just like shows you how, you know, multinational corporations can operate with some sort of almost sovereignty and autonomy from laws because they are sort of outside of any one jurisdiction. I feel like we should pivot. I mean, since we're talking about executives going to prison, we should probably talk about prison in general. First of all, how responsible is Joe Biden for mass incarceration directly? That's one thing <laughs> That's I want to ask. <laughs> because I, I hear that all, you know, I've, I saw that meme a lot in the primary kind of uh-huh. gone away. But I do wonder what exactly changed in the, the 90s as far as drug laws. And also in the Aussies. I mean, apparently Obama eased up on the war on drugs. But what did that well, really he, mean? He, didn't he just cancel like the powder versus crack cocaine thing, which is... Or maybe like a recent history of like what happened. Yeah, what, what did Biden sure. do in the 90s yeah. and sort of catch us up to date? <laughs> yeah. So uh, the Obama administration, what they did, what Congress passed and he signed was a lowering of the disparities, right? So the crack powder cocaine sentencing disparities were 100 to 1. So, you know, five grams of crack got you the same sentence as 500 grams of, of cocaine. They lowered that, that rate. Yeah. The weirdest yeah, thing is bad. five grams of crack is mostly baking soda. Yeah, it's less. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's actually, yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah, well, so they didn't actually, so they didn't get rid of the disparity altogether. They lowered it to 18 to 1. Um, <laughs> what? Still. Yeah. So in the 90s, uh, the big thing in the 90s was the 1994 crime bill. And so that extended beyond drugs. That was where you got a lot of these sentencing enhancements for certain kinds of offenses. There's a big focus on protections for victims. But what a lot of that ended up looking like was just longer penalties for other kinds of crimes. And, you know, things like three strikes. Right. And what you have happened, and this is this didn't just happen in the 90s, but this is with sort of criminal justice legislation generally, is that the federal government will do something. And then states will follow suit because the federal government will give them financial incentives for enacting similar laws. Oh, right. Mm. Right. So like the crack cocaine disparity, that 100 to 1 disparity, that was just for federal cases. Um, but then what you had was you had states enacted on a state level as well. And so it's the same thing with these sentencing enhancements. So they did these things at the federal level, not abolishing parole, but getting it where you had to like serve like two thirds of your sentence. Mm. So then you had states that made those same changes to their sentencing. And that contributed greatly to mass incarceration because then you had people that served much more of their sentence, right? So if you were, if you got a 10 year sentence, maybe you served half. Now you're serving like eight of those Mm, 10 years. So Biden specifically, though, how is he looking as a drug policy reform candidate? Um, Just as a drug policy reform candidate. I mean, we have two candidates. He's the best we got. Um, (laughs) One of the worst possible ones for drug reform, I feel like, on the Democratic side. But Well, he's a politician, you know? I mean, in the late 80s and the early 90s, that legislation was backed. It was bipartisan. So right. you would, there, I don't know like what the count was on some of these votes, but the majority of Democratic senators and congressmen also voted for these, these enhancements. Right. Um, Being so, tough on crime. That was just like mm-hmm. considered politically golden for decades. I mean, up until yeah. probably okay, last four the, years. Like, the, like you know. broken windows, stop and frisk, all of these right. type of policies in the 90s were being enacted. That was just, right, that was, I guess, an easy vote. In the, in the 90s, crime was like guys jumping out of alleys with switchblades, you know? <laughs> I feel like it's like, <laughs> um, feels different now. I, I have a question, though. I mean... But wait, I still want to know specifically, do you know Biden's position moving into 
the election? Has he even talked, he about, talked about it? it. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't know exactly what his policy position was. I think he put out a plan to deal with, you know, the opioid epidemic that focused a lot on treatment. I want to say that he said that he, he did not like support full legalization for, for marijuana, but I would have to, I would have to check on that. I think he, you know, he's been generally like supportive in this kind of general way without kind of committing to like right. larger scale reforms. Right. Mm. Yeah, you answered the question, but I didn't realize it, saying he's a politician. <laughs> in a fantasy zone, though, like, let's say there was, like, the dream candidate on the ballot. Can you name, like, two or three key things that you would love to see passed? Or maybe to narrow it down, though, because, like, obviously, like, full decriminalization or full legaliz- legalization would be best. But right. Maybe what are the most pressing and most realistic, right? Okay, Does true. That make right, sense? right, right. That's basically the question I'm asking, right? Yes, you know, most realistic... <laughs> Uh, (laughs) probably something pretty in the weeds. But I would really, I mean, one thing that I think could be doable is is sort of just redoing the whole Controlled Substances Act, like the scheduling of drugs. You know, removing marijuana from Schedule 1 is something that that should certainly be done. It should be probably moved to like Schedule 3, um, which would allow for more research and and lower penalties. I think one thing, actually, if if you're talking about at the federal level, I think a big thing is to change the funding incentives, the Hmm. the structures for funding for local law enforcement for states. Because most mass incarceration is at the state level. Right. Um, not that no one's in federal prison, but it's mainly done at the state level. And so I think like providing incentives to state. So at the local level right now, for example, law enforcement gets funding from the federal government based on like number of arrests. What? And so that puts God. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. So a lot of the, the a lot of like the grants and the funding that goes to local law enforcement is based on how many arrests they make. And so that yeah. obviously makes the big incentive to arrest for things like drugs because they're so easy to make an arrest for. Right. Because there's evidence if somebody has possession and you, know, you prove the crime right there. And so really changing those kinds of structures, I think, wow. um, would be one thing I would want to see, because I think it's I think it's relatively doable, you know, and I think it would make a big difference at the state level. And I think it would send a, a really clear message to states that like, OK, it's really time to start rethinking how you all are, are treating these offenses. But is there anyone who's doing drug reform that we should be paying attention to? I mean, Rice University, but like, is there, are there any grassroots organizations or anyone you think is really stellar? Yeah. So, um, drug, drug policy Alliance is sort of like the main drug reform organization in the U S they're really good at both grassroots mobilization and then also advocacy at a national level and within, within Congress. And then, you know, other groups, you have the harm reduction coalition. They are very much about direct service delivery and and mobilizing at a, at a state level. And then you have a lot of other think tanks that are look at drug reform as one aspect of criminal justice reform, right? So there's like the Prison Policy Initiative. There's like the, the Vera Institute for Criminal Justice. There's like the Criminal Justice Policy Institute. Uh, they have a pretty comprehensive blueprint for the drug reforms that they would like to see as well. In terms of the things, uh, activism that's kind of come out of the death of George Floyd, I personally feel like I haven't seen enough focus on the war on drugs as a big part of why police end up killing unarmed black people. But I I wonder what intersections you've seen in terms of drug policy reform, ending the war on drugs and the current unrest and demands that stemmed from the the murder of George Floyd? You know, I think that there's certainly within the reform community, like within the Black Lives Matter movement, and then also within people that are very tuned into drug reform, I think that it is a clear, direct link between these incidents of police violence and the war on drugs. But I'm not seeing that at the 
at the level of like policymakers and elected officials. I think you know most of the kinds of reforms that you we, that we see talked about are things like citizen review boards. I think there's a lot of focus on uh, changing police tactics, but not a lot of leaders calling for larger drug reform. I think there's still just this this idea that like, well, we still have to enforce the laws. I think like a lot of police departments have that attitude, and they're like, well, if you don't want us to enforce the laws, then change the laws, right? And then that again goes back to the legislature, and then you have to deal with that. So it's sort of this you know, cycle again of sort of just inaction. Yeah, I just, okay, so regarding mass incarceration, I feel like you always hear, and the prison industrial complex. It's just kind of a slogan that goes around without really thinking much of it. How much of the prison industrial complex actually is private prisons? Like how much of that is real and how much of it is just sort of the grant programs that you were referring to of, of police being incentivized things? But how much of it is actually for profit? Yeah, so, you know, actually, I looked this up very recently. Uh, so private prisons, about 9% of prisoners in the U.S. are in so private That's prisons. really small compared to what we hear about. Right, like. sure. Right. right, so you have the private prisons and 9% of people, but then you also have these larger systems that do things like the um, contract for prison food and health services. Right. Even though it's right. not necessarily just direct containment of people, there's this whole industry around incarceration. Because this was related to your question, Dan, but in terms of reforming drug law itself or full decriminalization, full legalization, I mean, is it public pressure on the politicians to keep these laws in place? Or like how much pressure is from elsewhere versus the public? I guess. Well, yeah, I have question. the same question. Like yeah. why, I mean, especially now in an age where everybody knows somebody who's had some negative, really negative um, or just situation had an opiate with addiction. An opiate or- addiction or something. I mean, there's so, I feel like there's there's so much compassion now for understanding like what, what addiction is. So where is the political pressure coming from to keep these seemingly very regressive laws in place? And, and why is there not sufficient political pressure to change these laws? I just cannot understand what's holding them in place. So if you, it's kind of both, right? So part of it is very much organized law enforcement groups is where a lot of that mm. pressure is coming from. So you have, for example, attempts to roll back penalties. I'll just use the example of Texas. Possession of any amount of, of heroin or cocaine is considered a state jail felony. You can get, it's a felony. Have any amount less than a gram. Yeah. So there's been a lot of attempts to roll back the penalties for that. And it's always prosecutors who oppose that. And they have a lot of power. And part of that is because you have people from, from conservative districts who are worried about being primaried. And they're still worried about being primaried on, on like tough on crime issues. Right, right. Um, and had that play out a lot of, uh, in the opposition to marijuana reform, where, you know, again, just looking at Texas, you have like a majority of Republicans that say that they at least support decriminalization. But if you talk to some of the conservative lawmakers who oppose it, they'll say, yeah, well, like, I, you know, I personally don't really care, but, you know, I have to worry about my primary. And the, the turnout for the primaries is abysmally low, right? It's something like 6% of eligible voters, you know, in some of these counties. And so it's such a small percentage of, you know, and red districts, ultra conservative voters that that determine these people's reelection chances. And so they're kind of like held hostage to that. And then at the same time, you have pressure from like district attorneys in those areas who, you know, can threaten to highlight these issues in these primary campaigns. 
you know, it's not balanced in terms of the weight that they hold compared so to one. You're basically saying the country is being held hostage by a bunch of like over 60 red state voters who managed to like write the like election day on their calendar and show up. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> I mean, I also, what is the deal with the prosecutors? Like, are, yeah. are they just sadists? Yeah, like, really? really? What is like, that? What? Or is it just like deep-seated there, racism? Must be like, some, there must be a sadistic element involved here because it doesn't make sense otherwise. I also, never like, understood how, how many, you can like, moralize a fucking chemical in the first place. But also, I mean, like being white, going through college, like as a white person, I saw like tons of people from good families who were doing tons of different illegal drugs all the time. And so like, why, why does it, I mean, you can only look at Racism, racism must for the be reason part of it. why, right? Because like, there's this idea of protection. You're not going to prosecute your like white neighbor's son. I I don't know. It just yeah. No, it, no, but that's definitely the lawyers in Norfolk. I those guys are fucking crazy. Yeah, They're doing so like so many people are like actually of these people are doing drugs. Right. But of course, I mean, look at uh, look at Lindsey Graham. I mean, there's a lot of people who like have some sort of like perverse relationship with breaking the same laws they like are the <laughs> most extreme of enforcing. I guess that all plays into the the, the transgressive I mean, game I do for them, have right? This, I do wonder, I'm like, how much of this is like a certain class of lawmakers getting off on transgression and knowing that they're going to keep these laws there so that they can have their like little secret, like, I don't know. I mean, of course, that's not the real right. reason, but like somewhere in their psychology, I wonder no, if that's like in play. a confederate like powder horn full of blow. Like <laughs> yeah. Break out on the pool table. I don't know. Right. I think that there are individual people that have those kinds of motives. Again, it goes back to the othering of people who use drugs. Criminalizing drug use makes us naturally see that as a deviant behavior in and of itself. Right. Um, and the, the damage that that's done. I mean, the extent to which that is internalized by people is really damaging. Um, and it, again, it's not even just for people that are in power, but I mean, people who use drugs themselves, that labeling of that as this deviant behavior. But I think you also, again, have to talk about organizational incentives, right? When you're talking about things like prosecutors. So their metric, right, is number of convictions, right? That's why so many things end up in guilty pleas, right? Like 97% of convictions end with guilty plea. Wow. And so when you have the, when your metric is that you care about is number of convictions, then you're going to want things that are easy to convict and drug possession is an easy thing to convict. Mm. You know, there's this thing about like bureaucracy, you know, institutional bloat. And um, with the defund the police conversation, there's been a lot of calls to defund prosecutors. Right. Uh. Um, And even if you look at some of the most progressive prosecutors in the country, like Larry Krasner in Philadelphia, who's been really like lauded as the reform minded, he doesn't want his office to be reduced. We have the same thing here in Harris County. You know, our district attorney, Kim Ogg, sort of ran on this platform of being a progressive prosecutor. She had a lot of financial backing for being that way. And since she's been in office, she's requested an additional 125 prosecutors. And she hasn't gotten them uh, because Harris County hasn't wanted to do that. But people have a vested interest in their organization, Mm -hmm. right? And in growing their organization and in their mission that like somehow gets separated from their own individual feelings about things like drug use or their own experiences with people who use drugs. Right. Fentanyl and more widely opioid analogs, because now there are analogs with really different structural basis than any opioids that have even been used medically. Like they're getting really esoteric with finding chemicals that are agonists at the mu opioid receptors. Um, And the 
Chinese chemists making all of these analogs is a big industry, one, and two, they're getting really good and they can move faster than the laws can essentially keep up. My question, though, is what has fentanyl's effect been on traditional heroin production and the supply chains? And, and specifically, I wonder if demand has grown so much that the fentanyl and other analogs merely aug- are actually augmenting the market, like just fulfilling demand? Or are, is it really on the cartel side motivated purely by profits and they're actually replacing it with a deadlier, deadlier alternative and killing off their customer base, which is a bit odd to me. So I, I wonder if you actually know about the mechanics from the black market side of, of those things. I said a little bit about it. I, I don't know how much fentanyl has actually displaced the heroin market. Mm-hmm. What I can say, though, is that I, I mean, I really think that the influx of fentanyl and these other synthetics um, is a supply side thing, not a demand side thing. Okay. There, there's a demand there for, for opioids. There are certainly people now that now that they've been exposed to fentanyl want fentanyl because they have such a high tolerance or they you know, prefer the high that they get with that. I mean, I think the influx of those things was primarily the fact that there is so much more money to be made and that it was so much easier to move around. That's um, fucked and so, I mean, up. Do you, do you know how much of it was sort of like official Chinese policy to let that happen? I wonder. Was, is, it, is it a reverse opium war thing? Because it definitely feels like it. But cause I'm <laughs> sure it's highly illegal to, to sell it within the country, I assume. I, I don't know, actually, but... No, yeah. I mean, there's not, I don't have any good evidence. I've wondered that myself too. I mean, and now, I mean, the relations have deteriorated so much, but since 2015, anyway, we've been asking them to crack down. I mean, there's hundreds, literally hundreds of thousands of labs there, like making precursors for, for fentanyl and actual wow. fentanyl. Right. Um, and we've asked them to crack down and they say they're going to, and then they don't. And they, they, they like don't have currently a system where they can, cause they only have like a, a few thousand inspectors, I think, for what I said was hundreds of thousands of, of chemical plants. But certainly, they, they if, if it was a problem in their country, they'd be cracking down on it, I think, like yeah. the question. Yeah. Can you say any w- words on how America is perceived in the international conversation about drugs? <laughs> Not well, would be my guess. I mean, you know, I, I don't know. You guys probably have a better idea than I do in terms of what our standing is in, in other countries. But I mean, I think certainly we're seen as at the very least hypocritical, right? It's always been a, this thing where we've tried to regulate what other countries are doing within their borders when we are the main demand for, <laughs> for drugs. I mean, especially our relationship with countries in Latin America. Right. Um, you know, it's, a, I think, a problem for diplomatic relations, certainly. Right. I mean, sort of relatedly, how has the quarantine, how has the lockdown affected the, I mean, I guess mostly the gray economy for, for drugs? And, and also on the harm reduction side, what effects has that had on users? Yeah, so in terms of the in terms of like the uh, supply of drugs, I think there is a lot of regional variation in that. What you're hearing is that in some markets there hasn't been a lot of disruption yet. So, for example, here in Houston, we haven't seen a huge disruption to like uh, the meth or heroin markets. And part of that, like part of the thinking behind that, is that maybe there are already sort of large stockpiles here locally, mm-hmm. and so like border shutdowns haven't heavily uh, impacted that. Um, but in other markets, you've heard things about, like, certainly price gouging, for one thing, and prices going up on the street. There has been, you know, reported changes in, in the quality of drugs, maybe more additives, maybe things that are a little bit different that affect the market. And then certainly people's anxieties around the market, right, right. about the availability of things. It's kind of hard to generalize because, like I said, I do think that there's a lot of regional variation. 
Right. I mean, I think also maybe this is something that you had, you were writing about, you know, for the past few years around the Purdue controversy, the outing of the Sacklers, there's been a massive focus on opioids and harm reduction for that. But I think something that you were saying or that you were writing was that there's, there's this increasing problem of mixing of different drugs and there not being enough education about interaction between different drugs. Um, Can you speak for a second about where we are in terms of harm reduction across the board? Is just opiate use and the uh, risk of of fentanyl, um, is that the sort of number one concern right now? Or for you, are you seeing other patterns of use that you think are like should should deserve equal attention? Yes. You know, most of our focus on harm reduction has been around opioids. And in some ways that makes sense because they do carry a higher risk for overdose. But look at the overdose data, right? I think in 2018, there's around 48,000 overdose deaths, which is a slight increase from 2017, but maybe it's a holding steady. But if you look at that, two thirds involve multiple drugs. And sometimes that's multiple opioids. Like sometimes it's like Vicodin with fentanyl or heroin with fentanyl. But then you also are seeing a huge increase in, you know, benzodiazepines like Xanax and Valium. And you're also seeing a huge increase in, in the role of stimulants of meth and cocaine. We talked about the opioid epidemic in terms of waves. So like the first wave was in the like early 2000s was like the prescription opioid wave. Then 2010, they talk about the wave with heroin. Uh, and in 2015, you see fentanyl. And now sometimes we're talking about a fourth wave, which is considered this sort of polydrug use, benzos and the role of benzos. Yeah. And and so we do focus very much on opioid-related harm reduction now, like things like Narcan becoming more prevalent to reverse overdoses. Uh, I've started to see more focus on things like fentanyl testing strips for people to test their drugs Mm. for fentanyl. which is really important now, especially because there have been reports of fentanyl coming, turning up in like cocaine and meth, right? Uh, Which isn't where you would normally <laughs> think it would be. Why? I mean, Seems maybe, maybe it's like, yeah, maybe I'm na- I'm naive to this, but like, why, why, why would like maybe I don't know if you can even answer this question, but like, why would a dealer put fentanyl in their coke? Like, why? I don't I don't get it. Physical well, there's a couple different theories, right? So we don't know for sure. So one of the theories is just that it's cross contamination. That mm-hmm. that like people are bagging up like different drugs on similar surfaces, not cleaning properly, and that some of the fentanyl accidentally gets mm-hmm. in you know, a bag of Coke that way. And then the other theory, because so like most, if not all of the cocaine and meth supply that's had fentanyl in it, they've been able to determine that that's at the retail level, like it didn't come into the country that way, which would indicate that it's being mixed at a lower level. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the other theory is that maybe there's, you know, inexperienced people that are selling drugs that might be like mixing things to like increase the potency of, of what they're selling. So there's the, the jury is still out on why exactly right. that's happening. Right. Um, Cause right. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, right. People that combine those drugs, you know, usually want to combine them on their own. They don't want them. Right. To come we should definitely get into cyber stuff. Cause you have actually written about, and I learned this acronym from you, from you. Rats. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Cool. We'd love and to talk about rats. Al- algorithmic. Uh, the the increasing role policing, of yeah. yeah say what rats are. Policing. Maybe yeah. say what rats are. Also. Yeah, the risk assessment. Yeah, the risk assessment tools. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I actually haven't called it rats. And I was like, what is he, what did I write about? (laughs) Oh yeah, no, it really uh, stuck out to me, that acronym. And I was like, are they, who, who came up with that? Were they trolling? (laughs) Can't be coincidental, but yeah. (laughs) 
I mean, I think also just maybe I think we can speak at the same time about body cams in general, mm-hmm. like the sort of techno solutionism to the issues of police reform and all the unexpected right, consequences, right. which you mentioned in both of those. The risk assessment tools are they're sort of these logarithms that are supposed to be able to predict a person's risk for reoffending, right? And so they can be used at different points in the in the criminal justice system. They're most often used to make supervision decisions. So like for probation, for example, and determining what level of supervision a person needs or how long they need to be supervised. But they're also used at parole hearings. Uh, So like when a parole board is determining whether or not someone should be released, they have this sort of risk assessment thing that tries to determine whether they're at a low risk or high risk for, you know, reoffending and then making a decision based on that. Like the body cameras, it's kind of this reliance on technology. So you're sort of like, okay, well, you know, we'll take the human decision maker out of this equation. You know, that'll eliminate bias. We'll leave it, you know, to this machine learning. And then, you know, we'll solve all these problems. But, you know, the fact is, is that the, the machines aren't really that great. And they still, you know, people are still the ones operating them. And so like with risk assessment tools, for example, you know, they don't actually predict someone's risk of committing another offense. They predict a person's risk for being arrested for another offense, which is a thing that is predicated on many factors other than whether or not you commit a crime, right? right I mean, we're right. talking about racial disparities. You know, you're more arrested to be black to be arrested if you're black or, you know, a person of color if you live in a high poverty neighborhood. And so, you know, they're not they they have this kind of bias built into them. They're also not that great at predicting. Uh, if if you look at the risk assessments, they they're really, they're pretty good at predicting whether or not someone's a low risk, right? So if you look at like the low risk group of offenders, they get it right about 90% of the time. They say like, this person's low risk, they're actually low risk. But if you look at people on the high risk side, they're only right about half the time. Hmm. So meaning that like, you know, the, the, this tool labels someone as being high risk and their actual likelihood of reoffending is, is 50%. Um, that's not that great. I mean, that's a coin toss, right? Yeah, and then you're making decisions based on that. And of course, like they make a big point of, you know, they don't have race included in the metrics specifically, but when you have all these other attributes that are just but, proxies for race. Right. Where like are they? Yeah, what data? Where does it pull the data from? I, so it depends. Some of the tools are like really complicated. Some only have like three or four questions. But one of the main ones that it, it takes into account is criminal history, which again has sure. so much, is so tied into people, into race. But the, there's usually an assessment done. So like when someone's arrested and like when they're, when they're being held in jail, there's usually like a, a questionnaire that they'll do. So the actual risk assessment itself is a questionnaire. Hmm. Um, but how the, how but the like personality, what's like, I mean, is, is it, does it have to do with like big five personality test type stuff or. So some of it is things like, like, uh, are you a you know male or female? What's your age prior criminal history, which, you know, again, you can look up someone's criminal record and then beyond that, they kind of vary. So like one question will be like, you know, what was the offense committed? And then some of them include things about like, you know, what neighborhood you live in or are you employed? You know, what's the highest level of schooling that you completed? People's family uh, situations, you know, whether they're married, single, divorced, substance use, those kinds of questions. You come across a tortoise on its back in the sun. <laughs> right. Blade, Blade Runner uh, testing the if you're human. A, r- human or not. But are they all yes or no questions or do they require natural language assessment? Yeah. Uh, it, dep- it, it again, it kind of depends. Cause so yeah, so like the, these tools are usually like, they vary by state. Yeah. I mean, there's so much variation in them, but it, 
they're not all yes or no. I mean, cause like, for example, like the ones like about high, like education completed is going to be some kind of scale, right? So this information is then put in a system that are like, there's, a, there's a grading system, you know? So you score somebody, you know, one to five based on like how they're responding to different questions on this questionnaire. And the, you know, those scoring systems again, kind of vary by which instrument you're using. Mm. Wow. Uh, maybe we can talk about body camps too, because I do think that's yeah, interesting I mean, in a similar yeah. way. Because yeah. it's this, this sort of, yeah, deferring to some technological tool for the sake of neutrality. And you said in your piece that it, the inadvertent effect is that you that cops have to arrest people for the drug offenses because there's there's evidence of it uh-huh. and they'll get in trouble if they don't. Right. Which is, I mean. Unbelievable. Like, I mean, it's counterintuitive. Yeah, right? well, I mean, it's, it's logical, but yeah, yeah of course, yeah. unintended. So well, how would you how would you avoid that? While I mean, obviously well, there's benefits of having to body laws camps and policy. Yeah, I guess it's right. the only law. law. But I, I, other people may not. Have, I mean, you should. Everyone listening should check out uh, Katie's writings. Uh, we'll put a link. Yeah, I'm sure that, in the podcast. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, the, walk. Yeah, if you want to just briefly walk us through this, because that was something really really interesting uh, that you wrote. Thanks. Yeah. So just so with the body cameras, right, again, it's sort of this technological solution. And it, it makes sense that people want the body cameras in response to the, um, you know, excessive use of the police force because they think like, OK, let's get this on camera and then we'll know what happened. Right. Although what we've been seeing is that the body cameras don't really prov- often don't provide sort of like definitive conclusions on things. Um, sometimes people don't activate them or even when they are activated. Sometimes it's hard to see what happens or, you know, they fall off and, you know, all kinds of things happen. So, again, it's like a, you know, the solution, it's a limited solution. One of the ideas, though, of the body cameras is to limit officer discretion. And I think that that is certainly something we want to do when we talk about officers that are abusing their discretion. On the other hand, though, you you also have a lot of times where officers would prefer to not make an arrest. Mm. Um, and that goes not just for drugs, but for other kinds of interactions as well, right? For example, someone who's homeless. Say a business calls on someone who's like, agitated and like they're like oh you know they're bothering people outside or customers it used to be i think easier for officers to just tell the person to like leave the area but with the body cameras there's an additional level of internal accountability that they have to worry about right within their department and following department procedures so it you know i'm I'm not against the body cameras i'm just saying that require us to rethink the policies that are written for officer discretion i mean it's it's a complex thing right and it's difficult to craft policy that addresses multiple different kinds of situations. And I think with the body cameras, that's just one apparent example of that. Although, I mean, the example you just gave of a business, uh, you know, calling the police to help take care of a homeless person who's harassing customers, that seems like a great place where you actually should have something besides the police to call and take care of this person and like remove them without having to turn on a body camera. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with that. And I think that if you talk to officers that you would find that a lot of them would say that they don't want to respond to calls like that. Uh, right, um, right. I mean, you know, so much of what they do is navigating domestic disputes, for example. Those in particular can be really volatile. But I think a lot of officers would prefer to not respond to, you know, mental health calls or to calls for just people who are outside or who are homeless. You have to have a system in place for an alternative response. Excuse me, with the defund the police movement, you're seeing a lot of call for like social workers or or, um, mental health counselors, which I think is great. I think that you have to have those positions staffed. Like, Mm -hmm. so for like here in Houston, we have a crisis intervention team and there's, it's like an officer that's paired with a mental health worker that they'll get dispatched to 911 calls that seem to be uh, primarily like suicide related or like someone who's suicidal that calls 911. 
but there's not enough of those units to respond to all the calls in the city. And they don't work usually at night, right? So they don't work the night shift. What? <laughs> <laughs> that does not so you make only any. have a crisis business during business hours. Yeah, yeah. yeah right. that's crazy. That's very German, I feel like, actually. <laughs> I want it to happen where we have an alternative to officers responding to these kinds of calls, but then we have it has to be staffed. And if you think about, like, especially the call for, like, social workers to be involved, if you think of, like, what social workers are paid, um, you're going to have to provide incentives and it's going to have to require funding. And that doesn't have to be within the police department. It could be, you know, funded through some other mechanism. But but the incentives have to be there to get people that are are willing to respond to those kinds of calls. Yeah, I mean, I really feel like it should be more like reallocate the funding, not defund, because there's too many government (laughs) programs being defunded. And it's not really something that we should... Right. In favor, be in favor of generally, right? I mean, yeah, but yeah. I mean, I have to say, the just that mechanic of funding for the police federally being based on number of arrests. I mean, despite how terrible it, it sounds, and the fact that you can't actually uh, expect an American to look deeply into those words whatsoever, I mean, it does make sense that the funding mechanics of the police is fueling a yeah. Shit ton of the problems, I mean, you could right? absolutely inverse it where the, you know, like decreased arrests mean there's less crimes and you're succeeding. I mean, right. it's harder to measure that. Is I the can't problem. help but think about this as the kind of dependency that the police have on the federal government. And if we're talking about like addictive cycles, I mean, the stretch of the word, but like, you know, there's like a certain <laughs> totally dependency. Addicted to arrest, yeah. arrest. They're addicted yeah. to arrest. Yeah. Well, that and I mean, we didn't talk about um, asset forfeiture. What what's the word? Sorry. Oh, civil civil uh, forfeiture. Civil, yeah, civil asset forfeiture, because I think that obviously fits in here and too. And no knock warrants and yeah well, yeah yeah. But- yeah the yeah the civil asset forfeiture is another like huge problematic incentive because they get to they keep so much from that in texas like on average law enforcement gets like 41 million dollars annually through civil asset forfeiture wow wow it's just yeah, it's a huge it's a huge incentive you need such a low bar to like prove a crime i mean it, it's like reasonable like suspicion essentially it's like less than probable cause to connect like property to a crime that's committed in order to keep it. Wow. Um, so yeah, I mean, that is definitely another incentive that, that needs to be reformed. Some of these things just Um, seem so simple and easy and like, Everyone go would vote. agree. Just go vote. Like, I don't know. Everybody young should actually vote. I, I mean, feel sure. like I feel like they should. Don't right. not vote. That's right. for sure. But I don't know if voting is going to solve. Well, at the local level. Yeah, I mean that's that's the thing. At the local level, something we're realizing now, I think, is that local politics are immensely important, especially yes. when it comes to reforming things, anything related to the police. And yeah, I think we'll hopefully end up seeing a whole bunch of like Gen Z people running uh, for city council or whatever local position mayors whatever they can really powerful strong tiktok campaigns <laughs> getting, getting elected in these positions yeah i don't know yeah i, can I only could hope. see that happening with gen z but i do think with millennials uh no one is going into elected office in general just because mm-hmm. there's millennials are lost lost, lost cause, right i have yeah. to say i'm sorry <laughs> wait till they get into their 40s and 50s just wait wait till they get into their 40s and 50s <laughs> sure. let's see. Um, I mean, I wanted to ask, like, what what is important to you right now? What do you think? What did we not touch on that you think is important? And and, uh, I mean, similarly, what are you focused on in the near future? um, Thankfully, like people that provide harm reduction services like needle exchange and and that kind of thing, I think they're usually 
used to operating with a tight budget and things not necessarily like going their way. And so they've been able to adapt really well. I think you've seen a lot of like contactless drop-offs of needles and other supplies that people need. And I think one of the big benefits, at least here in the U.S., is that rules around medications have been relaxed. So like now for Suboxone or buprenorphine, you can do like a telehealth appointment to get your mm-hmm. your uh, treatment regimen started, which like it used to be that you had to go in person. And so some places that have the telehealth capabilities have actually seen an increase in people seeking treatment. And I think part of that is because now there's greater accessibility, especially in, in more Absolutely. rural communities. Yeah. And so it's the same thing with methadone. You know, I mean, the, the rules around methadone are so punitive. I mean, having like requiring people to go every day to a clinic is so problematic. And I think like now you're seeing take-home doses be allowed for like up to a month. And also like some really innovative things with like courier services for people where like you have someone who can deliver methadone to somebody if they can't leave their house or if they're in quarantine or isolation. Dope (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So I think that all of those innovation, people wanted them before this happened. Before the pandemic started, there were always all these excuses about like why we couldn't do it, like why you couldn't have longer take-home methadone or why you couldn't use telehealth as the main outlet for Matt providing. And now you're seeing that like, oh, actually we can do these things. And the relaxed restrictions are set to expire when, whenever like the end of the emergency is, you know, the national emergency is... uh, Luckily, that's and not going to end anytime soon. So, <laughs> right. Still, like, why? No, I don't think so. <laughs> yeah. What are they trying uh, to protect? To come back to yeah. the question, what are they trying to protect? What kind of, like, yeah. Yeah, what's the... The things yeah. with, like, the methadone and the suboxone, it's always this thing about, like, you know, we don't want it to be diverted to the street. <laughs> and I'm just like, why not? Yeah, exactly. Like, what is... <laughs> <laughs> God forbid. Like, I don't think... I don't really see why it's problematic at all if, if suboxone is being sold on the street, you know, and it's, it's a safer medication. I don't, I don't see the problem with that. Right. Especially Um, when the alternative is like dope with like fentanyl in it. Like, right. But there's a hospital that could get a really good bill for having like somebody who needs to show up in the emergency room. I mean, I don't know. Maybe that's too cynical to read it that way. I mean, we found an excuse to print $2 trillion out of thin air. Like I just don't. (laughs) Use of oxen doses on the street. Exactly. I really don't understand how you can hold up any semblance of why you need to go back on these things. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm hopeful that we won't. I mean, like you said, the national emergency situation we're in right now is not going away anytime soon. That's one area where I'm actually hopeful that we'll be able to continue with some of these relaxed restrictions around those things. And I'm, I just hope that we can see it translate into like drug policy more generally. And I think at the, at the same time that you have people that are, have greater access to things like Suboxone, cause now they have the telehealth, they, you also have people that have lost their jobs and, right. and because of that have lost their insurance. And so maybe now they don't have access to the treatment that they did previously. And then also the stress of that, right. Of possibly losing your job or the isolation that is coming with the lockdown. I mean, I think all of those things are, are obvious uh, triggers for people to start using or to start using more. So what are, what are you focused on in the next year? So we actually, right now, we're working on putting together a series of events that look specifically at some of these issues of systemic racism that have been brought up with the protests over the police violence. We can't just address this problem by saying that like, we have to stop using the criminal justice system for drug use, right? I mean, I think it's much bigger than that. And, you know, the health system very much plays a role, not only in, in terms of being an alternative response to using the criminal justice system, but also ensuring that the response that we have through public health isn't in itself a mechanism for control and overly paternalistic or racist because, I mean, there are plenty of evidence of racism in the public health system Mm -hmm. as well. 
And so what I'm focusing on right now is I'm working with uh, the Center for Health and Biosciences at the Baker Institute. We're trying to organize a series of events that address some of these topics. So part of the impetus for doing that is not only to have a public conversation, but then also to engage elected officials, both locally and at the state and national level. You know, in Texas, our elections are in 2020. The legislative session will start in 2021. They only meet here every two years. So it's a really short window of time to like get things done. I'm hoping that because of the environment that we're in right now, there will be a little bit more open-mindedness to some of these reforms that we've just been discussing. So I'm going to be working really hard to talk to elected officials about what changes can be made and also about so what changes we can make that don't cost a whole lot of money. I don't think asking for huge amounts of funding for anything is going to be a winning argument right now. I mean, but it's not really about costs as much as it's about preventing other things from making money. Right. Right. Like, because, I mean, it doesn't cost them anything to stop uh, arresting <laughs> like drug, uh, drug for people for drug possession. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just a loss right. of like prison industry money and a loss of That's like, a cost. Cops. I mean, I guess it's a cost for cops and for prisons. But yeah. 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 So right now you're right on the criminal justice side. And that is one of the main arguments that we try to make is that it'll save a whole lot of money. Right. If you make these changes. I meant more in terms of like on the treatment side of things. Right. We have like not nearly enough money that we need to provide services Mm -hmm. to people. But I think that given the kind of environment we're in right now, where like Texas has like a five percent across the board budget cut. And I I think other states are in similar positions. I think it's going to look a lot more at like repealing restrictions rather than providing support uh, right. at this at this time. Right, 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 right. Does yeah. the farm does the pharmaceutical industry, since they're um, like dope pushers anyways, like support decriminalization or legalization? Are they involved at all in this as drug dealers in the business? <laughs> mm, I have not that I've. I don't know. They certainly don't give us any money. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I will say there's there's like several different lawsuits going on right now against like opioid manufacturers and distributors and pharmacies. And the big case is this national settlement that involves all 50 states that's going to be decided in Ohio. Some early terms have been hammered out, but it's supposed to be like 25 billion that's going to be then divided among the states. There's some some things that have to happen before that money will be released. And I mean, twenty five billion is a lot, although if you compare it to the tobacco settlements, those were like the tobacco settlement was like over two hundred billion. Oh wow. Um, yeah, so it's not nearly that large, but this is just one settlement. Like this one just involves like four companies. I think it's like Johnson and Johnson. Amerisource Bergen and like Cardinal Health, I think. Oh, and then Tiva, which they're donating like 10 years worth of free Suboxone, I think. Right. Um, so so, like so they, they, they kind of have to pay this settlement, but they kind of get some of it back because they also make the replacement therapies. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, that's the thing with like with the settlement, like the, the Tiva pharmaceuticals, like they get to, they're paying not in money, but just in Suboxone. And it's like... <laughs> 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 Oh, man. (laughs) Yeah. But I mean, but the good news is that it will be like if and when the settlement is approved, it still will be a decent chunk of money to go to the states. And it's a good influx of cash right now um, that we need. And hopefully it's not the end of the settlements, but states do need this money like now. And I just hope that it's not restricted like only to opioid use. Like I hope it's money that can be used for, for drug use more generally. Right. I just have one question, but what what's the hottest new drug? What what <laughs> drug is growing the the fastest in the last couple of years? Well, certainly, I think well, there's been a whole lot of interest in ketamine. 
Um, like not at like a epidemic proportion level, but I think like among people who use drugs, you know, more recreationally, I think there's a lot of interest in ketamine right now in terms of like other drugs. I mean, I think like you're still, (laughs) I've heard a little bit of that. Yeah. Sorry. We're coming to you from Berlin. Yeah. Berlin ketamine is more socially acceptable than strong weed. So yeah. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. 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 Yeah, well, you know, people. Want, I think uh, I think there's a lot of, of interest in it right now. But overall, trends are pretty steady in terms of like you know, meth and cocaine, slight re- regional variation. Right. Here, meth people like meth here, and like you know, like the MDMA that's like available here locally is like mostly meth. I mean, so it's just sort yeah. of it's very rampant. Regional flavors. That's where you still get the regional produce, I guess. <laughs> <The> drug markets. <laughs> local, local, local. Our local MDMA local MD. is meth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I also kind of wanted to ask you one last question about like like the like nootropics. We have actually we have a Discord server and like one of our channels is on nootropics. I mean, I was going to ask this question like, do you use any oh, nootropics? Wow. A- but I mean, that would this does blow up in a whole other category. So I don't want to like. I know we need to because, wrap up, but because well, the United States has uh, sort of notoriously lacks um, the uh, supplement uh, supplement like leniency, right? Like you can sell something as a sup- supplement without it being FDA approved, as long as there's not like specific health claims. I think which that actually came from ACT UP, the uh, AIDS protesting in the late '80s of like demanding access to uh, proprietary treatments, anything that might work to save lives during the AIDS epidemic. If I'm getting that right, of course uh, the United States is like a sort of wild west for this. Yeah, I don't know if you have anything to say about that segment, though, or sector. I mean, I do I do think some of it's interesting, though, in the way that some of these medications, the potential that they might have for um, as like replacement therapies, like with like meth, right? For example, we don't have like an established medication to treat meth use like we do for opioids. Um, but there's been a lot of studies that have looked at propion, which is uh-huh. like Wellbutrin. It's like a, yeah, an antidepressant oh, yeah. with stimulant properties, but... There's been some research on that. It hasn't really been like conclusive that it's like that effective, but most of that research that looks at drugs in that way look tries to look at things like abstinence and not just harm reduction. So mm-hmm. like it's on my radar, and but yeah, I'm, I'm I haven't like followed too closely in terms of like trends and increasing. Years. Yeah, that- but to go on that, girl, I do love the idea that like these plants and these substances and our bodies are interconnected in very dynamic ways to the environment around us. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Yeah, I mean, I I find it fascinating, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, research and data like it moves fast. I mean, there's so much like human guinea pigs out there. There's a, a whole Reddit full of human guinea pigs. Yeah, right. doing, studying and trying things and and kind of. Figuring Blue light? Is blue light still happening? Does blue that light still? is still around, I, th- I think, yeah. Um, although Psychonaut Wiki is the go-to, I think, right now for information, I think, personally. Um, <laughs> do, do you follow Ibogaine at all? Do you know anything about updates of if it is uh, getting anywhere closer to... I know they were also studying uh, an analog that they developed that was supposed to be non-hallucinogenic because how dare you have a spiritual awakening while, uh, you know, yeah, breaking your uh, physical addiction. But, uh, yeah, I haven't, you would probably actually know more about that than I do at this point. I mean, I know that they were studying it for that purpose and, and looking at approval, but I'm not sure where that, where the okay. process is. Right now. Well, anyways, any, um, anything else you want to 
anything you want to plug uh, to leave us with or where people should check out? Um, I mean, check out our website, bakerinstitute.org. Um, and yeah, no, I mean, that's that's it. I think we covered a lot of ground. This is oh, a lot yeah. of fun. Yeah, Katie, thank you <laughs> so, so much. Yeah. It's so, so great much, to have an Katie. expert yeah. in the room. <laughs> well, thank you for having me. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to the New Models Podcast. Quick shout out to Itzma 3D and Path. Thank you for being essential members of our community. If you want to join us on Discord and access more content, visit patreon.com slash newmodels. We also want to thank the team and owner at Trauma Bar und Kino for hosting and supporting SimCity 2020, our wildly successful event that happened IRL last week in Berlin. Everyone survived. Pierce Myers, Brian Wolf, and Philip Mon shared their Strelka research on carbon capture, quarantine, and future food. And artist Richard Kennedy wrote and performed an opera of epic scale, featuring Miss Hollywood, Fernando Casablancas, P.K. Giaba, and Peter Fonda, with costumes by Florian Mathay and a DJ set by Chem. Video of the lecture and opera is forthcoming. Finally, if you live in NYC, stop by Rena Spalling's Fine Art, 165 East Broadway, where our work is on view in a group show called Sewers of Mars. We collaborated with the artist Bjarne Melgard, who added his own layer to the Decade Brain timeline our community collectively created earlier this year. Broadsheets of the project are available at the gallery while the show is running, but a proper edition might be coming in the future. Thank you for listening. See you next episode.